Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by, watching, but the leader scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the kingdom of the if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over here. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? <clears throat> Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. Yesterday, a few of us from Church of Our Savior attended or joined online in the deanery listening session regarding our search for our next bishop. There was a lot said during that meeting from needing someone to help manage a complex, fragile, institution that, yes, is in some decline, to being willing to engage with a diverse and highly opinionated body of laity and clergy that we call the Diocese of California. You don't know any of those opinionated laity and clergy, do you? I don't either. It brought to mind the warning that one of my brothers gives about the desire in the church often when we're calling a new rector or a new dean or certainly a new bishop. For those of you who are Tolkien fans out there, it's like we're looking for Gandalf to come up over the horizon with his magic staff in his hand on a white horse and rescue us. Or if you've been watching the latest series on Amazon, Galadriel to show up on horseback just in the nick of time, backed with the skill of the elves and the steel of Numenor. But the takeaway for me was given by one of the search committee members who reminded us that no matter who we call, we will always need a shepherd who will regularly proclaim and bear witness to what makes us distinctive as a tradition and a church. That is, we will always need someone who reminds us to proclaim unabashedly that in Christ, death 
is defeated. From that, we draw on a radical hope that is worth sharing with the world in word and in deed, that no matter what we face on the road together, and as individuals, we and all creation are promised new life, new hope, in a word, resurrection. These are appropriately enough the themes of this last Sunday of the church year. Our prayer book describes today somewhat prosaically as the last Sunday after Pentecost. But we also have inherited from the wider tradition a much more lofty title, Christ the King. I am taken by our readings today back to those years when I was just learning to speak. Crawling around under the pews during services, I don't know why my mother let me do it, but she did, at Little St. Paul's Goodland, Kansas. I had no words for it at the time, but St. Paul's was an Anglo-Catholic parish, which meant amongst a host of other things, that the prominent cross in the sanctuary was not an empty brass one like ours at Church of Our Savior, but a three-quarter life-size crucifix, at least that's how I remember it. On it, a lifelike suffering Jesus, Mary and his mother, Mary his mother and Mary Magdalene, on either side looking up in sorrow to behold the death of the Son of God. What's striking to me about this memory is not that the image is seared there, but what is striking is that I equate the image not with what you might expect. That image of a suffering Jesus on an instrument of torture and execution is something that the world would objectively regard with horror, and in a way it should, but I don't remember it with any fear or dread. Instead, I remember it with a sense of warmth, comfort, and grace. Maybe it had something to do with the warmth of the community gathered around me in those early formative years. And the familiar words that I could barely wrap my own tongue around that I heard week after week. Maybe, it was the music and the scent of candles and the occasional incense, but what strikes me now is the irony of that juxtaposition, the visage of the most unimaginably painful and shameful of deaths, alongside an overwhelming sense of awe, life, comfort, and community. This is the irony all of us are invited to confront on this final Sunday of the church year. It's a Sunday that only recently became known as Christ the King, largely as an effort in the Roman tradition to subvert both rising secularism and the virulent nationalism and totalitarianism creeping across Europe in the first quarter of the 20th century. It picks up on that most ancient, subversive of proclamations that Christians held. It was a twofold proclamation. Christ is risen, 
That is, death is defeated and we are no longer possessed by the fear of death or even violence. And even more subversive, Jesus is Lord. Hint, hint, the emperor isn't. <clears throat> Pull that out next time somebody tells you the gospel isn't political. For the author of Luke's gospel in particular, there is no mistaking the irony of his depiction of the crucifixion wrapped around the proclamation of Jesus as king. Declared, in fact, by the Roman governor. The dwelling of kings and queens and empresses and presidents, for that matter, as we all know, is in well-apportioned palaces beautifully kept large homes surrounded by an entourage of servants and security, or in a more modern democratic society, civil servants and, of course, the secret service. None of that is present in today's gospel, is it? Luke's emphasis on the political realities of empire makes the irony of Jesus as king on the cross all the more acute. The cross, with all of its distorting, destructive, dehumanizing effects, could not be farther from the insulating comforts of power and prestige that we so easily imagine is due our duly appointed and elected rulers and leaders of all kinds. It is Luke's gospel that uniquely offers us the story of two criminals crucified with Jesus. And for me, the message is crystal clear. These early Christians for whom this gospel was written had already experienced persecution, the threat of dissolution and death, and the uncertainty of their place and their roots in a world where empire had crushed the Jewish capital and the second temple to dust. Those early Christians, deeply aware of their sinfulness and imperfections, their failings, perhaps even the ways that they had betrayed each other under the pressures and stress of persecution, might well make them identify with the criminals crucified with Jesus in today's scene. We might, too, 20 centuries later, in those most deeply honest moments when we are confronted with our own weaknesses and our failings are missing the mark, which is what sin actually means, in ways more than we can count. Luke chooses two criminals, not just one, in keeping with patterns from several other stories in the gospel we have heard over the past year. Some of you will remember that Luke likes character pairs for illustration. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Reflecting the intransigence, the entitlement and the blindness that is so easily generated by socioeconomic inequity. Do you remember the contrast of the righteous Pharisee and the contrite tax collector one a holy man of his society, the other a pariah, an outsider. 
That's what Jesus uses to teach us about how our prayer life must be carried out with a searching humility. The criminals today illustrate and compare the choices we face when our God joins us in this life of being burdened with consequences that are too great and too frightening to contemplate. The first criminal responds by deriding Jesus for being a failed king, even a failed divinity, if you like. Nobody likes a God who can be killed. Jesus was supposed to rescue us, after all, from the worst of ourselves, from the worst of our enemies. The Messianic tradition held that Jesus, or whoever was the latest hoped for savior, was to be the knight in shining armor that would defeat the empire and restore the romanticized memory of the Davidic dynasty of Jewish kingship. And if that feels a little bit distant and historic from where we sit 2,000 years later, I invite you to look closely to the aspirations of our political headlines and the language, even at times of our beloved prayer book tradition. We are not careful. We are still looking for the night to become our king or our queen or our president or yeah, our bishop. To mix up the popular cultural references further, do you remember Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker sitting in their land speeder, confronted by a stormtrooper? When it comes to Luke's gospel, you can almost hear Obi-Wan saying, this is not the Messiah you are looking for. This is not the Messiah you are looking for. Save yourself and us is the automatic cry of a world caught in the throes of death, and particularly the death of its own power. The harsh spotlight on our own failures. We want quite naturally to be rescued. We want a God who follows our rules, our rules of redemptive violence, our rules about inflicting vengeance on our worst enemies. We prefer a God who rather than encouraging us to embrace transformation, let alone suffering. We prefer a God instead who pats us kindly on the shoulder and tells us we're really okay after all, and Jesus is just here to make everything all right. Throw in a palace of our own while you're at it, Jesus, please. We'll be happy, thanks. God in Christ the King comes instead directly into our suffering. This brazen God, this unexpected God, even the suffering that is self-inflicted, the suffering handed to us by others, and of course the suffering we all know that is a function of the natural limits of our mortal lives. It is a radical and unsettling notion that this king, or as the Roman tradition puts it today, officially and cosmically, the ruler of the universe, deigns to come into the worst of our lives, 
the darkest places of our hearts, who gives up divine life willingly and ironically into our hands, and even allows us to execute our worst judgments on him. So I don't know about you, but I have to pause here to catch breath. To imagine ourselves on the cross next to Jesus seems exactly what Luke is getting at. And it moves out of the comfort of these pews and this space and this community and this morning, so filled with people we love and into the world that we know is out there waiting for us. We return to it after this respite of sacrament and fellowship. It moves God out there into the places that most of us are least comfortable discussing. Even here, among the compassionate and the loving. So it's the second criminal that Luke offers to us as an example. In a powerful confession, he scolds his companion for missing the point, admits his own failures, and then he does something quite profound. He asks for Jesus simply to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Notice that's all he asks for. From the standpoint of his confession, it is already a stretch, a bridge too far to ask simply to be remembered, like having his name written on a page of our book of the beloved departed. This is the moment, conversion for most of us. We come to terms with who we really are in a glimpse of clarity. We realize how far we have fallen short of what God intended us to be. We feel like the distance between us and God is infinite for all practical purposes. And yet here is Jesus struggling and suffering with us. And so we ask simply, remember me. Jesus' answer is as immediate as it is striking and simple and profoundly moving. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. So much more than the second criminal requested or believed he deserved. More than not simply being forgotten, Jesus assures him of being with him in what we would call heaven today. First century Jewish tradition likened this to going to Abraham's bosom, an image incidentally that Luke uses in that story of the rich man and Lazarus the heart of the revered eternal parent of a people. Christian tradition has likened it to returning to the ancient garden of life. If you want to look to Genesis, or on the other hand, being welcomed into that heavenly city. If you want to look to the other end of our scriptural tradition at Revelation. 
Luke offers us a king we do not expect, nor a king that we think we deserve. This is not ultimately a God who punishes, nor is it a God who takes up our narrative of redemptive violence. More stunning to those of us who think about God in our own context, this is not just a God as a perfect divine being who enters our imperfections and suffering simply to understand us a little bit better. This is a God who takes on our deepest pain and speaks most lovingly to us in our most humble moments. And in those moments offers us wholeness, new life, even a wholly remade universe around us. <clears throat> Eternal life, we call it. Eternal life with our God and all whom we most deeply love. The funny thing is, after all these words, no one's asleep quite yet. I reckon this is what I understood somehow, even before I could speak, crawling under those pews in a little parish on the high dusty plains all those years ago. It remains ultimately what keeps me coming back to read these stories, hear them, reflect on them with fresh eyes and ears time after time. And above all, to this table of fellowship and this place of sacrament week after week, month after month, year after year. This is what keeps me coming back. How about you? Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon. Uh -huh.